0: I don't know what your college experience was like, but as I look back at my college experience and look back really at my life's experience, we would all have what I would describe as shining moments. You have those, right? Shining moments, things that you've achieved, maybe careers you've stepped into, maybe a spouse that you landed, whatever you wanna call it. Uh, You've had a shining moment, right? But I would venture to say that you have a list Now, maybe it's similar length, maybe it's even longer of not-so-shining moments, right? Things that you're like, eh, I'm not very proud of that. I don't want a lot of people to know about that. I'm not going to give you examples of what those are because you all got them. I don't know you all super well, but I know that enough uh, to know you've got some not-so-shining moments. Well, I had a not-so-shining moment just a few years ago. A few years ago, my not-so-shining moment, I was literally laying in a crumpled heap in the front lawn of my college professor's house. I'll rewind about five minutes Why I was there. So five minutes ago, my brothers and I had just finished a 12-hour roofing job. It went really well, no injuries, it looked great, and at the end of that, my two younger brothers kind of chimed in and said, hey, we should race to the car. Now, I had two options in that case. If you're on a two-story roof, you know, you can go down a ladder or the other option, You can go down a ladder. And so they had a ladder at one end of this roof and a ladder at the other. So I've got two brothers. They both went opposite directions, but I knew there was secretly a third option. The third option was there was a dumpster full of broken shingles just about two feet away from the roof where I was standing. And I decided in all of my God-given intelligence my God-given ability, my God-given logical thinking skills that I should jump into the dumpster and then I would beat my brothers to the car, right? Well, you know how that story plays out. So I jumped into a dumpster full of broken shingles and it's basically like jumping 50 feet onto straight concrete. Like I immediately, when I landed on that dumpster, knew something had gone terribly wrong. <laughs> I had broken something. I didn't know what. I didn't want to use any non-Christian words. So I just kind of like sat there and I was like, oh, that really hurts. Like it, it didn't feel good. I, and that's not what I said in the moment, but it didn't hurt. It did hurt for sure. And So I decide, okay, I'm going to make this right. I'm not, I can't be, can't be that bad. So I kind of climb out of the dumpster, and then I jumped back onto the front lawn. Again, I had to have broken something again because I just fell immediately down to the ground. My brothers are laughing hysterically. They could not believe that their older brother was so stupid, and I couldn't either in that moment. And so that happened. Go to the ER. I knew I couldn't walk and figured out that I had severely broken my right ankle. Now, all of you, again, are much smarter and wiser. You would never do something that dumb, right? (laughs) Just making sure, Um, just confirming that before we move on. Right, you would never do something that dumb. And so I figured out, the doctor said, hey, it would have been better if you had broken it cleanly, but you didn't, so it's going to be a long recovery. And to that, as a college student, I was like, yay, I can't wait. And that next week, I had to travel for an entire summer, I had to load trailers, unload trailers. I had to speak. I had to lead worship. I had to do a lot of physical activity. And so like any smart college student did, I decided, ah, here's the guidelines for good recovery, but I'm not doing that. I'm just going to walk until it feels good. I'm going to keep making it happen. And to this day, no lie, I still have a very weak right ankle compared to my left. After some long runs, I'm still aware that something at some time was very broken. Something was very wrong. And you may not have broken a bone in your body, but you know what it's like to break something physical. And maybe that was a baseball in your living room that, that ended up in the wrong spot and somehow crashed the flower pot, or it was something outside, or you were really angry and broke a mirror, or, or like LeBron, punched a whiteboard or something else weird like that. Uh, but for all of us, we know what it's like to break something. And the kind of immediate, like, ugh, like immediate cringe when you know something is broken. We all know that that's not just true when it comes to physical things. It's also true when it comes to relationships, when it comes to our own uh, marriages. There are things that we break all the time. When it comes to even sometimes our relationship with God, there are moments in which it feels broken. Maybe for you it's the, the the stress of the next bill coming in and your finances are broken. And so when you try to approach that, it's extremely overwhelming. It brings frustration, it brings stress. When you think about getting married again after having lived through a tough, broken marriage, it almost seems like, can I even do that? Can I even restart? When I when I think about raising when I'm thinking about raising more kids and the, the kids I have, I would describe as semi broken individuals it feels overwhelming but all of us voluntarily in seasons of our life have broken something and at the core of those broken things something that scripture points to and I want to define and talk about for the next few minutes it's this whole idea that all of us live in a a, a cycle of brokenness and I don't know if you've picked this up but in your life Every single broken thing has a ripple effect to the next broken thing. So for me, I didn't break another ankle, but immediately after I jumped into the dumpster, what did I do next? I decided to break it even worse and jump out of the dumpster, right? But all of us have those cycles of brokenness. There's something about brokenness, and when we break something that begets something else, being broken. I think it's a fair question. When you look at the life of David... You look even at your life when you and I look at my life when the people around you maybe take stock of their own lives, I think it's a fair question to ask. And this is what David helps us explore. How do I break the cycle of brokenness? If today I was going to leave with some kind of plan, with some kind of idea or some kind of truth. That you and I could directly apply to our lives. I think one of the most important questions we can answer in all of our spiritual life is how do I break the cycle? How do I break the cycle of brokenness? How do I break the cycle of voluntary or even habitual or patterns of sin in my own life? How do I break the cycle? Now, David, as compared to many of us, knows exactly what it's like to live in a cycle of brokenness. David has some extremely high shining moments, right? We talked about this, the the moment where he's anointed king, he's a man after God's own heart, and then immediately after, he has some moments in which he's not so shining, and his his integrity is breached, he's not the kind of king that God expected or, or wanted him to even be, and he has some not so shining moments where the cycle of brokenness is repeated, even in his own story. But David doesn't just have the ability to empathize with us. He actually gives us a way to break the cycle, to look at through the scriptures and through his own life story, how you and I, even today, no matter where you feel, whether you're really close to God right now or you feel really, really distant from him, you and I both can learn from David what it means to break the cycle. And so the story happens in which David is fighting against the Ammonites, and the Ammonites were kind of the rival tribe. It's kind of like Byron Center and Caledonia, if you will. You're like, oh, we got to take them out, hardcore, like we're going to come after them. It's kind of the same thing, and there was just always the Israelites chip on their shoulder, which is weird for me because I I grew up in Caledonia, now I live in Byron Center, and I don't know who to choose, but I'm going Bulldogs for today, so... Bulldogs for, for today. And so they kind of had this relationship. The Israelites would push back the Ammonites. And the Ammonites would push back the Israelites. It's just kind of this back and forth tug of war of sorts. But Israel was starting to, to gain some ground with the Ammonites. They were starting to take them out. And they became began this campaign that was extremely successful in wiping out the Ammonites. And right after that happens, they're about to do the final push. It's the springtime. They're ready. The conditions are set. And they're about to send out another troop to kind of wipe off the Ammonites from the face of the earth. But David doesn't go. David the king, who first and foremost, remember in this culture, the king was the military leader. Commander-in-chief was easily the most important And so he stays back. And it's kind of peculiar because what happens next, what he breaks, kind of reveals something about his own heart, his own character, his own not-so-shining moment. In 2 Samuel 11, you've probably heard this story, or maybe you've even read this story. 2 Samuel 11, David is in a very high place in his palace and you know, obviously, from medieval times, the castle or the palace would be very high up. It would be a vantage point in the entire city. So David is up there on this vantage point, And below him would be some of the wealthier houses, some of the warriors, some of the people who were kind of highest up and elite in this area of Israel. It would be in the houses just dotted around below the palace. So David's sitting there on the palace. I don't know what's going through his head. I mean, he's probably thinking about, is this war going okay? Am I actually going to wipe off the Ammonites? What am I going to have for lunch? I mean, all those very important questions were going through David's mind. He's up there in the palace, but he looks down. What does he see? He sees Bathsheba taking a bath, which is why I love her name. It's just ironic. Scripture's good that way. I don't know why they do that, but thank you, Scripture writers. It was good. So she's down there. She's taking a bath. Now, first glance, you're like, come on. Like, what kind of lady goes to take a shower up on the roof? Like, seems to be promiscuous, a little bit exhibitionist, a little bit weird. Like, are you sure that that's in the Bible? And that's not at all what's happening in the story, because David would have been at a high vantage point, and this roof that he's literally having to intentionally look down upon, it wasn't easy to view. He had to actually look, because roofs in that time had actual privacy walls. Because frequently, there's no indoor plumbing. There's not a nice raindrop shower. There's none of that kind of thing that we get to enjoy every time we go to Hampton Inn. Like, there's none of those things. And so David is, is kind of intentionally looking. He's intentionally seeking out this woman. He kind of knows. He maybe hears the water going. Here's the basin being filled or something like that. And, and every month when a woman had her cycle, they'd go up to the roof and they would cleanse themselves. It was both for cleanliness, but also as a ritual, just as purifying themselves before they continued on with the month. And so Bathsheba's up there doing her thing, minding her own business. The privacy wall's there. She's not showing off for anyone, but David sees something. And David in that moment breaks something. David sees Bathsheba and he he gets some of his messengers. I imagine they're probably not too far off. He kind of calls them in and says, hey, go find out what that lady's name is and see if you can get her up here. He knows she's married. She was married to Uriah, one of the strongest warriors in David's army, who's out fighting the battle. She knows he's married. He knows she's married. And so he sends for her. Imagine the anxiety when it's the king's messengers coming for you. Right? Your first thought is probably Uriah. My husband has been killed in battle. They're coming to tell me that. The second is what could he possibly want if that first scenario is not what's happening? And, and I got to get ready. Like, I just got down with my bath. Like, I got to get some stuff on. I'm going to the king's courts. And so Bathsheba gets ready. She goes to David's inner courts. And what does he do? He breaks something. He takes advantage of Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. And over the next course of this, this scene that we read about in 2 Samuel 11, he tries to get Uriah, her husband, when he's back on the bat, from the battlefield. Would you sleep with her? Like, please cover up this pregnancy. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't do it He refrains from indulging As a good warrior would In that time He tries to get Uriah drunk And then sends him back again To his house Say please Would you sleep with your wife And that's such a weird request For the king And Uriah's like Nope I'm not doing that I want to honor you as the king I'm fighting this battle Against the Ammonites I'm not going to do that So David does something By upping the ante And he continues the cycle Of brokenness He sends Uriah with this note He sends it Uriah doesn't know what it says, he brings it to the commander Joab who are on the front lines fighting the Ammonites and it reads, hey, when you're about to make your final push against the Ammonites, I want you to send Uriah because he's a strong warrior. I want you to send him up to the front and let him take out some people but then I want you to do something peculiar. I want you to withdraw all of the other troops so it's just Uriah out there fighting by himself and we all know what would happen, the dude dies, Obviously an entire army against one guy and Uriah is slain the news travels back to Bathsheba she's mourning she is broken and that's where we pick up after this fatal love triangle thing takes place that's where we pick up our scripture for today 1st Samuel 12 2 Samuel 12 so if you've got your scriptures we're just going to look at a couple things David does because it's best to be students of scripture to observe it to see how do we break the cycle is there actually a way And in 2 Samuel 12, this is what happens. The prophet Nathan shows up to David's house. Remember the story we just talked about. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. Now the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, it grew up with him and his children, it shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prep a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb from the poor man that belonged to the poor man. He prepared it for the one who had come to him. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man. He said to Nathan, surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity then Nathan turns to him as a good prophet would and says you are that man you're the guy I'm talking about he uses this parable to convict David of what he had done with Bathsheba against Uriah even against the nation of Israel I mean remember King David anointed by God man after his own heart was charged to lead God's chosen people and he does but he breaks something in the process He not only breaks Bathsheba's heart, takes advantage of a woman, assaults her, takes advantage of her situation. He also kills her husband. If that wasn't bad enough, he tries to cover it up multiple times, but is then confronted with the truth by this prophet Nathan, who God had given the power to convict kings. And so when you look at this story, it's kind of bleak. It's like, where do we go from here? And Nathan comes against him after saying, you're that man. He says, this is what the Lord of God Israel says. I anointed you king. I delivered you from Saul. I mean, I I did all these things. I set you up to win as the king. And instead, you broke something. And God goes in to charge him and says, you're going to pay. You're going to have justice brought to your house because of what you had done. But David's response is everything. And just like when we break something... When I broke my ankle, I had a choice with how I was going to recover. Now, I chose wrongly, but I had a right choice. I could have listened to the doctor, listened to my Nathan, who paid a couple hundred bucks to to get my x-ray. But David does something in verse 13 that gives us hope for how we break the cycle. If you see it in the scriptures, you can read along with me. And David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned. I've, I've done wrong. And not only does he recognize in his heart probably that Bathsheba is a victim, Uriah is obviously a victim, the nation of Israel, even Joab and all the people involved in the story are, but primarily his offense was against God. I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan uses that parable of the rich man the poor man and the sheep and the, the hospitality and all this kind of thing to convict David. But David was a pro at convicting people who had broken God's law. He often would have been brought cases just like the one we read about that Nathan brought him to kind of delineate, to figure out who's in the right, who's in the wrong, and how justice should be dealt. But he didn't think it was about him. He didn't think he was the one who had broken something. He didn't think he was the one who had done something wrong by violating Bathsheba, killing her husband, trying to cover it all up. But David's response is everything. And that's the hope for us. When you think about how do we break the cycle, that's the hope. David's response in verse 13, that he recognizes his sin. And Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. But it didn't work the other way around. Notice that. David confessed and God made him whole. But it took that initial confession. And here's the truth of David's life. And here's what's true for us when it comes to breaking the cycle of sin and brokenness. You and I will only live the life we're willing to be held accountable for. And that's not romantic, that's not fun, that's not exactly what you want to write on your life verse, right? It's just, it's not, but it's true. It's good, it'll bring you wholeness. You're only, you'll only live the life you're willing to be held accountable for. Reminds me of the quote in Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis, who's a Christian theologian, Christian author, writes this, that real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, The sin that's left over without any excuse, after all allowances have been made, and seeing in all of its horror, its meanness, and malice. I want to read that one more time and think about David's story. Real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, Bathsheba, Uriah, the army, the nation. Looking steadily at the sin, the sin that's left over without any excuse, David doesn't make a defense. David doesn't throw up a bunch of excuses. He just recognizes his sin. After all allowance of it have been made and seeing it, he recognizes his sin against God in all of its horror, its meanness, and malice. And this is true. Again, you'll only live the life you're willing to be accountable for. And the flip side of it is also true. That if David didn't have a Nathan, David would have kept on going in that cycle of brokenness. We don't know that, but we can speculate. We can look at the track record of his actions, When it came to this whole situation, and this is also true, that you and I will never seek restoration for something we don't think is broken. We're never going to seek God's help with something we think we've got on lockdown. We're never going to seek his help in a relationship in which we think we fully control. We're never going to seek his help when we know we've done the wrong thing if we're not really deeply convinced that it was the wrong thing. And forgiveness steps in to that gap. It's a little bit like driving at night with a dirty windshield. Now, some of you see this picture and you're like, you don't understand the problem. <laughs> you're like, I can see through it. It's fine. You guys are also the people who, when it's icy out, you just wait for that little peephole in the center to thaw. You know who you are, right? You have one in your family. You need to weed them out. But we're praying for you, okay? We want you to get better. We do. do. But it's when you're at night, when you're driving with a dark windshield, everything looks somewhat clean. Have you noticed that? It's kind of clear, like you can see through it. There's something about the lack of natural light bring in that doesn't really expose much. And then someone's headlights hit your, hit your windshield. And you see the random footmark that's up there. You see the candy wrapper that's somehow like glued to the inside of the windshield. You see the random bird... Stuff that you didn't even know was there. You see the random cracks, you see all the smudges, and it just looks dirty. That's exactly what sin is like. You think you're good until you have a moment like Nathan had with David in which he recognized, man, my windshield's filthy. I've sinned against the Lord and I need to make it right. Something happens as the story continues. David's son, as part of this moment of justice, never is born. God actually takes his son as as a sign that God has withdrawn his blessing in a way from David's life. And David still makes it right. God does grant him a son later in life, but it's not the one he expected. And it's not the one who is gonna continue to remember and and to be a a walking and living, breathing sign of, of David's sin and his brokenness. And private sin, friends, is never really private. you caught that there's a thing or something going on in your life that you think no one else knows about and no one else really is affected by it maybe it's an addiction to pornography maybe it's secret spending on a credit card maybe it's over drinking here or there no one really knows about it but friends private sin is never private it'll always seek us out because Satan's goal is to entice you to think that what God has given you is not enough That what his life, the the kind of goodness that he offers to you and living a life that honors him, it's just not enough. We need more, we need extra. Friends, I've lived in that place before. I didn't always have Nathans. I didn't always have the the willingness to be confronted and convicted the way I should have. I didn't always live this way. But if you want to live this way, If you want to seek out a life that breaks the cycle of brokenness and is not just aware of sin and sees it when it happens, but is also aimed and destined to change your life in a way that it doesn't keep happening, a way that you break the cycle, here's what you can do. Here's the kind of hope that David gives us. He has a Nathan. And here's what we're gonna do. If that is you and you wanna learn to break the cycle and you're fed up with the patterns of sin and brokenness in your own life that you have caused... It's very, very simple. You and I will decide today to pray, to discern, and to choose one person to be embarrassingly honest with. Now, that's not exactly in the scriptures. I know that's not in like verse 14 somewhere, that that's what we need to do. But that's what happens with Nathan, right? David had prayed and had a connection with God. It allowed David to be in his life. He discerned that he could trust Nathan too. But he also was able to be embarrassingly honest, to recognize, yep, you said I'm that man and you're right. I've sinned against the Lord. And then his life takes a turn and begins to seek restoration. And, and I've got Nathans in my life, but I didn't always live that way. I have Nathans in my life. I got to hang out with them a few weeks ago at my brother's wedding. Jason Parker, Brent Dongell, Mark Shepard, all guys who over the last 10 years or so I've been investing in my life and I talk to them almost every single week for multiple reasons but one, I recognize that I'm only going to live the life I'm willing to be accountable for. It doesn't happen on accident because you know this, the scriptures say, the heart is deceitful above all things. You and I, even as Jesus followers, we're convinced ourselves we're okay when we know we are not. We need Nathans in our life to speak truth, to convict, to bring correction, to sometimes rebuke us, to slap us around, and be like, John, you are not living the way God intended you to live. And I've had moments over the last seven, eight years in which I desperately needed Nathans because I would have just tricked myself into thinking I'm good without them, that I don't need them, that, that I can figure out this life on my own. But what if David didn't have Nathan? Would we even be talking about this story or would David's destiny and his dynasty just ran right into the ground? We don't know, but we can speculate that he probably would have missed out on God's best for him. And so maybe that person's already in your mind. Maybe you don't need to pray and discern. You already know who that person is, but you need to choose to be embarrassingly honest with them, to open up your life, to be vulnerable. Maybe it's a person in this church. Maybe it's a coworker. It's probably not your spouse. If I'm just being 100% honest with you, it probably doesn't need to be them. Guys, we don't need to share everything with that and vice versa, right? There's things that that we just relate better to in our own genders and you probably need to lock into that. But all that to say, if you are willing to pray and discern and choose a person to be embarrassingly honest with, you will start to live the life that you can be uh, be accountable for. Have you ever felt proud of your life? Have you ever felt like if everyone knew every secret, you would still be the same person? Because that's the kind of life of freedom God wants for you. That's the kind of freedom and open-handed life that Jesus models throughout the scriptures. And so not only will you pray, discern, and choose, you'll also meet with them. And maybe even meet with them in like the next week or two. Like you're just going to make it a point to do that because you know it's important. You know you need Nathans in your life to be embarrassingly honest with who will correct you in love. And that may not sound like the biggest moment of profound truth you've ever heard. But my ankle never fully recovered, and that is a big deal to me. I enjoy running, but there's some runs that I get at the end, and I'm just, I'm in pain. I ran 50 miles last fall at one time, and at the end of that, I barely felt like I could keep going because of my right ankle. It's not because I didn't mentally feel like I could do it. It's not that I was starving hungry, although I did eat a massive Chipotle burrito after. It was pretty good. It was worth it. It was worth the 50-mile run. But, But I never fully recovered, and friends, I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want you to experience a life that never fully recovers, that walks with a limp spiritually, because I know that's not what God has for you. And if we take it seriously to live a life that we could be accountable for, if we pray and discern and choose a person like that, even when we break things, we will have a life that is known, that is loved, that's cared for, that's not just supported, but also able to be supportive and it's open to the Holy Spirit. It's open to God speaking into our life when we need to be corrected. And the converse is also true. If we don't choose that, if we choose to walk away, we choose to leave the, the story of David behind and say, now nah, I'll figure it out. We are voluntarily signing up for a life that's full of chaos, that can be racked with pain, spiritually hurting, exhausted, fatigued, worried closed off to the things of God, apathetic towards his mission in the world, not really caring about zero unchanged lives anymore because it doesn't fit our current season. Those kind of things are what's at stake. But friends, I, I don't want that for you. I want a life for you that's open, that knows what it means to be held accountable, to be convicted and corrected, but like David, choose to seek transformation for your life to be different and for our lives to be different. And that's the goal. That's David's goal. If he was here, i trust that that's what he would say to you. Find someone and invest in that relationship deeply over many years and watch your life change. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to worship and respond. Jesus, we just ask today that you would make us aware. God, I just even sense on the stream that there is some very deeply Rooted cycles of brokenness in all of us. God, I even confess in my life the, the moments in which I give in to that and think I'm okay without a Nathan. I think I'm okay without your spirit comforting me but also convicting me. And Lord, I just, on our behalf, I just confess that. Say I'm sorry. Say that I need you so desperately. And God, I pray for these people. I pray For my friends here, I I pray that you would help every single one of them, whether the desire is there today or desire will be there in months from now. I pray that you'd help them to pray, to discern, and to choose someone which they can be embarrassingly honest with and that they'd actually meet with them in the next couple weeks so that we could see our own lives changed and see zero lives unchanged in the process. God, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you don't just condemn us, but you convict us because you love us. I pray you help us to deeply understand that today. In Jesus' name, amen.